If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. We are in week two of our current sermon series, Faces of Our Faith, in which we explore overlooked or ignored stories in the biblical narrative and lift up characters that remind us of our role in shaping God's story. And this morning, we take a deeper look at Anna, and next Sunday, we'll talk about Eutychus, which everyone is very excited about. Will you pray with me? You've heard the hymn, Holy One. It's the one with the chorus. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare. By thy return, sweet hour of prayer. We find ourselves in those seasons of distress and grief, Holy One. So trusting that you have a generous understanding of an hour, we do indeed come to you in prayer. For those of us swallowed by a sadness we cannot name, for those of us who will never not say that we are fine, for those of us who want, who need more people to check on us, to ask us how we're doing, to insist on catching up over a cup of coffee, for those of us who need space, quiet, no interruption, shorter lists, and at least one calendar square with nothing in it. For those of us who are not yet in recovery, for those of us teetering on the edge, for those of us who have come to terms with it forever and always being one day at a time. For the parent home alone, keeping the littles alive, and alive really doesn't do it justice, for what word can we use that covers all that it means? For the parent at the office, on the road, at the coffee shop, behind the counter, one state over, or only every other weekend, this too is hard. We are tempted to give up, give in, 
to throw in the towel, to believe that we are not enough. Help us to escape the snares that threaten to trap our hearts and minds. Hear our prayers, Holy One. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, the one who taught us to pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 21 through 38. After eight days had passed, it was time to circumcise the child, and he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem who was named Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, too. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. In the lectionary, the three-year cycle of recommended readings that we use, Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, is the text read every year on a day called the Presentation of the Lord, which does not usually fall on a Sunday, making it like a groundhog day of religious holidays. Someone has to remind you that it's happening. It's also the suggested reading in year B on the first Sunday after Christmas. But it's year C, so we didn't read it. Even still, as most of you heard, most of the text selection was not about Anna, but someone else. Almost 90% of the text is about Simeon, or a quote about Simeon, quote from him. Anna, Anna gets three verses, and she isn't attributed speech to any of them. 
This is the kind of scripture shenanigans that prompted Jane Schubert and Sharon Ring to begin the entry to the Gospel of Luke in the Women's Bible Commentary with the equivalent of a Surgeon General caution label. Warning, the commentary reads, the Gospel of Luke is an extremely dangerous text, perhaps the most dangerous in the Bible. Because it contains a great deal of material about women that is found nowhere else in the Gospels, many readers insist that the author is enhancing or promoting the status of women. Luke is said to be a special friend of women, portraying them in an extremely progressive and almost modern fashion, giving them a new identity and a new social status. But read more carefully, they say. Even as this gospel highlights women as included among the followers of Jesus, it deftly portrays them as models of subordinate service, excluded from the power center of the movement and from significant responsibilities. And the text we read today demonstrates what the doctors wanted to warn readers about. Here we have Anna, mentioned only in the Gospel of Luke, and he calls her a prophet, one of only six mentioned in the New Testament. And although he describes her relationship to her father and to a tribe, his social description of Anna focuses on her biography and virtues, not those of her father or her possible children or her tribe. And for this, Luke definitely gets an attaboy. But when we read more carefully, as Dr. Schubert and Ring ask us to do, we see that Anna's presence is part of Luke's writing technique, a technique called pairing. One version of a story or teaching refers to a man and the other to a woman, reinforcing the message and encouraging women as well as men to identify with the characters. This pairing often occurs in the discourse of Jesus. For example, the man who plants the mustard seed is paired with the woman who hides the leaven in the loaf. The man who searches for the lost sheep is paired with the woman who searches for the lost coin. Some healings form pairs. The widow's only son and Jairus' only daughter Sabbath healings of the bent over woman and the man with dropsy. And there are two lists of Jesus' followers, one of the male disciples and one of women followers of Jesus. Most often in these examples or illustrations, the woman or female character is a prop to affirm or bolster the immediately preceding example of the man or the male character. Luke almost never has the woman utter an original idea or initiate action. And you heard this in our story. Luke pairs Simeon and Anna, and both of them have responses to Jesus that are nearly identical but they are treated differently. So, how they are the same. Simeon gives thanks, and in doing so, he is quoted thoroughly. He is said to be ready for the fulfillment of God's promises. 
And the widow Anna is also said to have publicly given thanks and to be looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, which is another way of saying looking for the fulfillment of God's promises. But unlike Simeon, Anna, Anna's song is not written down. Her thanksgiving is not written down. The spirit is not said to be with her, even though it is said to be with Simeon. All of his words are written down. I mean, would it have killed Luke to have put her first? To have recorded what she said when she gave thanks to God? Alas, the gospel's emphasis, besides Anna's silent witness, seems to be the great length of her widowhood and her continual presence, fasting and praying in the temple. So what are we supposed to learn from her? Like, how to be a good little widow? Before we throw Luke into the fiery pit, I do want to give him a little more credit. There's some weird phrasing in this text that's easy to miss during Simeon's monologue, but for Anna's embodied faithfulness. Simeon notes that this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. But it's a weird thing to say, though, isn't it? The falling and the rising. The, the words are a little out of order when we think about it, although we weren't really paying attention the first time because we were mostly worried about what he was saying to Mary and Joseph. It wasn't exactly a yay, new baby kind of message. It's, it was pretty alarming for new parents. The, the child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and people's inner thoughts will be revealed, and they will oppose him, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. It's like telling someone who is experiencing pregnancy insomnia, just wait until the baby gets here. You won't get any sleep. Don't say that. That is not helpful. But that phrase, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, it really isn't right. It's, it's usually the opposite. Rise, then fall. But, but Simeon is quoted as saying the opposite, falling, then rising. And we expect odd phrases in the Bible. After all, it's old writing. It's from a different time and place and is often poorly translated. So we know that sometimes we just have to lower our shoulder and get to the rim, push past the distractions to get to the heart of the message. But thank goodness Anna appears. And with her, so does more odd phrasing although this time to describe her. She is said to have never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer, night and day. It's usually the other way around, right? Day and night, not night and day. So when we go back and read Simeon's words again, falling and rising, we know from Anna that we should be paying attention to this strange way, this strange phrasing. As it turns out, this is the life of faith. This is the path of, as followers of the way. It is a countercultural way 
to what the world expects. Theologian James Howell observes that in the world, it's rise, then fall. The rise and fall of the Third Reich, the rise and fall of the business tycoon, the rise and fall of the movie star. But with Jesus, it's fall, then rise. You'll remember him saying, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Fall, then rise. And Anna fasts night and day. Not day and night, it's fall, then rise. And Jesus did not fly directly up into heaven once danger flared. He suffered and died and then was raised to glory. Fall, then rise. This is our theological claim. We fall, then rise, instead of the other way around. It's easy, of course, to see this in Jesus' example. The crucifixion, then the resurrection, is the ultimate ending to a story. But it is not just for Jesus, not just for thinking about our own death and what comes after. This is our way of life to fall and then rise. The word fall or falling that we find in the text can also be translated as utter misery, plague, defeat. And the word rise translates into standing up again, a recovery. So we experience utter misery, plague, defeat, and then we experience standing up again, recovery. It's a real mind shift to think of this not as some big, splashy, one-time event, but as something that takes place daily in our smallest decisions, our smallest choices. This is the ethos of faith, ethos, the characteristic spirit of a culture or community as manifested in its beliefs and aspirations. And it is embodied in the life of Anna who experienced falling very early in her life. The text tells us she was widowed at a young age, which is supposed to indicate to us her very, very real economic distress. But it also signals us to think about the deep pain, the grief, the incredible loss that comes with losing one's spouse or partner or teammate. It is for an invitation for us to think about the emotional trauma of how Anna ended up a widow, that kind of pain is the definition of falling, of experiencing utter misery, plague, defeat. But somehow, it did not kill her. Her life did not stop. She kept talking to God about it, which is another description for prayer. And she did not run from feeling empty. Rather, she explored what that meant, which is another explanation of fasting. The worst thing for Anna turned out to not be the last thing. She seems to have claimed 
over and over and over again each morning, in the words of Maya Angelou, still I rise. And what keeps this woman from despair, what keeps her from suffering so badly that she, that, that she would give up, what inspires her to living in such a way that she is ultimately used as an embodiment of Jesus' entire life work, well, the answer to that, I think, may be more relevant to us than anything else in Scripture. It very much seems to hang on this turn of phrase, fall, then rise, night, then day. We catch her in the 84th year of her falling and rising. The text does not say that she just moved on. The text does not say that she forgot about her before life. The text only indicates that she consistently practiced moving from night into day, night into day. And apparently, Luke felt like this was enough information for us to understand his point, for us to see the falling and rising in everyday life. I still wish he had let Anna speak about it for herself. But instead, this morning we turn to another woman who has spoken and written about falling and rising and what it means to do that in our daily living. In her book, Untamed, Glennon Doyle writes, in the past 18 years, I have learned two things about pain. First, I can feel everything and still survive. What I thought would kill me didn't. Every time I said to myself, I can't take this anymore, I was wrong. The truth was that I could and did take it all. I kept surviving, surviving again and again, and it made me less afraid of myself, of other people, of life. I learned that I'd never be free from pain, but I could be free from the fear of pain, and that was enough. I finally stopped avoiding fires long enough to let myself burn, and what I learned was that I am like that burning bush. The fire of pain won't consume me. I can burn and burn and live. I can live on fire. I am fireproof. Second, I can use pain to become. I am here to keep becoming truer, more beautiful versions of myself again and again forever. To be alive is to be in a perpetual state of revolution. Whether I like it or not, pain is the fuel of revolution. Everything I need to become the woman I'm meant to be next is inside my feelings of now. Life is alchemy and emotions are the fire that turns me to gold. I will continue to become only if I resist extinguishing myself a million times a day. If I can sit in the fire of my own feelings, I will keep becoming. 
Consumer culture promises us that we can buy our way out of pain, that the reason we're sad and angry is not that being human hurts. It's because we don't have those countertops or those jeans. This is a clever way to run an economy, but it is no way to run a life. Consuming keeps us distracted, busy, and numb. Numbness keeps us from becoming. This is why every great spiritual teacher tells us the same story about humanity and pain. Don't avoid it. You need it to evolve, to become. And you are here to become. Like Buddha, who had to leave his life for comfort, of comfort, to experience all kinds of human suffering before finding enlightenment. Or like Moses, who wandered 40 years in the desert before seeing the promised land. Or like Wesley from The Princess Bride, who said, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Or like Jesus, who walked straight towards his crucifixion. First the pain, then the rising. All of our suffering comes when we try to get to our resurrection without allowing ourselves to be crucified first. There is no glory except straight through your story. Pain is not tragic. Suffering is tragic. And suffering is what happens when we avoid pain and consequently miss our becoming. This is what I can and must avoid, missing my own evolution because I am too afraid to surrender to the process. These days, when pain comes, there are two of me. There is the me that is miserable and afraid, and there is the me that is curious and excited. That, that second me is not a masochist. She's, she's actually wise. She remembers. She remembers that even though I can't know what will come next in my life, I always know what comes next in the process. I know that when the pain and the waiting are here, the rising is on its way. I hope the pain will pass soon, but I'll wait it out because I've tested pain enough to trust it. And because who I will become tomorrow is so unforeseeable and specific that I'll need every bit of today's lessons in order to become her. I keep a note stuck in my bathroom mirror, feel it all. It reminds me that although I began to come back to life 18 years ago in that AA meeting, I resurrect myself every single day in every moment that I allow myself to feel and become. It's my daily reminder to let myself burn to ashes and then rise anew. Like Luke, I have tried to explain the gospel I don't know if it has been made more clear, so I'm going to ask Sabrina for another attempt. The lyrics to the song she is about to sing can be found in your bulletin, 
and you may find them helpful. The fall and then the rise. This is our story, church, and not just on Easter morning. Fall and then rise. Just ain't got them. Ain't we always looking for a bluer sky? If you're ever gonna find a silver lining, it's gotta be a cloudy day. It's gotta be a cloudy day. And if you wanna fill your bottle up with lightning, you're gonna have to stand in the rain You're gonna have to stand in the rain Lemonade keeps turning into lemons And you wear your heart on a ripped, unraveled sleeve Then run through the ringer and pushed up to your limit Say you're just unlucky, but luck ain't what you need. Cause if you're ever gonna find a four-leaf clover, you gotta get some dirt on your hands. You gotta get a little dirt on your hands. And if you wanna find a head to fit your shoulder, you're gonna have to go to the dance. You're gonna have to go to the dance If you wanna find the honey You can't be scared of the bees And if you wanna see the forest You're gonna have to look past the trees Cause if you're ever gonna find a silver lining it's gotta be a cloudy day. It's gotta be a cloudy day. And if you wanna fill your bottle up with lightning, you're gonna have to stand in the rain. You're gonna have to stand in the rain. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.